All right, good morning again. Hope everybody's new year has gotten off to a good start. Uh, as Keith said, we uh, finished up our series on Genesis 1 through 11 last week. And uh, you may have been wondering, well, what's the next series going to be? And we do have a new series coming. It's going to start in February. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus in the book of John. And that series is going to culminate on Easter Sunday with what might be Jesus' greatest miracle, uh, the resurrection. So that's what's coming. But in January, we're more going to be doing kind of a a grab-bag mix of sermons. Uh, We're not going to be constrained by a series topic, so each week will be a, a surprise and hopefully a good surprise that the Lord uses to speak to you. And this week, as Keith already said, we're going to be looking at one of the Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 139. And this is actually one of my personal favorites, which is why I picked it. Uh, I love this Psalm. And I know I'm not alone in that feeling, actually. This is a Psalm that resonates with a lot of people. In fact, I would say that this is one of those Psalms that even when people who are not churchgoers hear it, they tend to go, hmm, mm, that's very nice. That's good. Um, now, why is that? Well, I can think of two main reasons why this is a popular psalm. So one is simply just that the language is really beautiful. Um, of course, not everyone always agrees on what is beautiful. You know, as I've noticed that if I find a YouTube video and I think it's the most beautiful, most moving thing I've ever seen, if enough people have watched it, some clown comes around and gives it a down vote, right? So beauty, to a certain extent, is subjective. Uh, But there's something about the language in Psalm 139 that many people just can't help but instinctively appreciate. And the second reason is because this psalm describes something that people, churchgoers or not, uh, sense to be true. Not all people, but most people, sense to be true, which is this. God is everywhere, and he knows me. God is everywhere, and he knows me. This sense of God's all-pervading presence. uh, I think that that sense is very common, even in this relatively secular age that we're living in now. And what the psalmist does here is he gives voice to this sense that we have. And he, he articulates it in a beautiful way that can't help but make us more aware of the sense. Uh, he expresses the sense in such a way that people hear it and they can't help but say, hmm, yeah, I felt that. I know that. And I think that's such a valuable thing because sometimes we need someone to give words to what we feel in order to know that we know it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Sometimes you know something on a certain level, but you're not fully aware that you know it until someone comes along and they they give the right words to the feeling that you have. And the psalmist here, who is traditionally believed to be David, has written something here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that really helps us to know what we know, that God is everywhere and he knows me. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to read the psalm, and I'm going to offer some reflections on it that I hope are are helpful, and then we're going to conclude where I'm going to invite us all to respond uh, in a particular way. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Psalm 139, Uh, but uh, before we read it, let's say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you for these uh, specific words that you inspired David to write. 
And Lord, I pray that you would just help us to be open to hear from you as we read them. God, I pray that we would be uh, willing to be corrected by you. I pray that we would be uh, inspired to love you more and to follow you more closely. And uh, God, I just, I thank you. I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your presence that is everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So there it is, David's beautiful expression of this idea that God is everywhere and he knows me. Now in verse 19, you may have noticed that there's a bit of a, a dramatic shift where, God, where David starts to sound pretty angry, right? Um, and we're going to talk about that shift because I think that's very significant. We'll get, get to that eventually. But before that, the focus is either on this idea that God is everywhere or that God knows me. Now, verses 1 through 4, I love these verses. These just beautifully express the totality of God's knowledge of us. Uh, to put it less poetically than David does here, what he's saying is, God, you know what I think, you know what I do, and you know what I say. Uh, you know, many of us value our privacy, and that's not a bad thing, uh, but it's important for us to recognize there is no privacy from God. Uh, you can have a passcode on your phone, but God still knows every text that you have sent and received. Uh, you can clear your internet history all you want, but God still knows every site that you have visited. 
Uh, you, you may seek out a home in the woods that's far away from everybody where you can just kind of be alone and, and in peace, but God still knows everything that goes on inside your house. You know, you can try to cultivate a certain public image, but God still knows who the true you actually is. Uh, the presence of God is so pervasive that none of us are ever truly alone. You know, no, no one's privacy is total. And that means nothing we ever think, do, or say is known only by us. And it doesn't matter where we go, right? Wherever we go, we can't get away from that pervasive presence. Verse 5 uh, says, you hem me in behind and before. Now, what does that mean? Well, interestingly, the word there that gets translated as hem, uh, it's frequently used uh, to describe when a group of soldiers uh, surround somebody in battle. Uh, it's a word that suggests being trapped, and not necessarily in a positive way. Uh, it's kind of like David is saying, God, you are giving me no escape from your presence. And then he goes on to poetically express the pervasiveness of God's presence in verses 7 through 12, uh, my favorite of which is verse 9, when he says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And what might not be immediately obvious to us there is what David is saying is, if I go as far east as I can, you're there. And if I go as far west as I can, you are there. Because the east is where the dawn rises, right? It's where the sun rises. And in David's world, if he went as far west as possible, that was the largest body of water. That was the Mediterranean Sea. So if I go as far east, if I, if I go wherever I know of geographically in this world, God, you are there. But more than that, he says that even if, he's, if he leaves this earth, the presence of God is still there. Verse 8 says, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And what's easy for us to miss is that word that gets translated as depths, it's uh, the Hebrew word sheol, which refers to the place of the dead. Uh, and actually, uh, Sheol had the connotation of being a place not just that people went when, when they died, but uh, a place of punishment that people went to when they died. So in more modern language, this would be something like, even if I go to hell, you are there. You're still there, God. Now, when it comes to this idea of the all-pervasiveness of God's presence, I think we as human beings have mixed feelings about that. Uh, some of us take great comfort in the idea that God is always there. And for those of us who feel that way, we might read the psalm and actually even get a little choked up or emotional because we just think, yeah, I know, God is there and he's always guiding me and he's with me and he's leading me. And for me, when I read the psalm, that's the main response that I actually have. Because uh, I can remember back when I was in second grade and in my Sunday school class, they were encouraging us to memorize the psalm. And I didn't even understand all of it, but I remember trying to memorize it. And I probably got about halfway through. I did, I did pretty well. And if you said to me, just start reciting Psalm 139, well, yesterday I probably couldn't have done it. But when, as I started to read it, and it was coming back to me, I was able to finish every sentence. And something about that was powerful to me because it was like, oh, wow, yeah, the presence of God was there when I was a little kid in second grade, and the presence of God is still with me now, and he's been with me the whole way, and I take comfort in that. 
right? So many of us have that reaction to the pervasiveness of God, the sense that God is with us, it's, it's comforting. But others of us feel kind of frightened uh, by this idea that God is everywhere and he knows everything about us and there's nothing that we can do to escape that. And then some of us experience some combination of the two, right? Maybe sometimes we really take comfort in the idea that God is always there and other times it makes us uncomfortable. You know, I think of that U2 song, With or Without You, and I think a lot of people feel that way about God. You know, I can't live with or without you. And one of the things that I find so interesting about this psalm is that I think we see David expressing both the feelings of peace that come from knowing about the all-pervasive presence of God, and also maybe some of the feelings of fear or those feelings of wanting to escape the presence of God. I think we see a little bit of both. Now, clearly when David says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, you know, that's positive. There, David is clearly, clearly taking comfort. He's seeing God's presence as something that holds him, that guides him. Uh, there it's positive. But I think we see hints in this psalm that maybe sometimes David is looking for a release or an escape uh, from the presence of God. Like, when he says, you hem me in behind him before. That's interesting language because it's like, I'm trapped. I'm trapped by you, God. Um, and then, of course, shortly after that, in verse 11, he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. Uh, it, it sounds to me kind of like he's saying, if I say, I want to hide from you, God, I can't, which kind of implies that maybe at times he has wanted to hide from God, which if you know David's story and you know about some of the things that he did, it would make sense that sometimes he would want to hide from God. So this leads us to the question, okay, what should we do when the presence of God scares us more than it brings comfort? Because it can do both. So what should we do when it's scaring us more than it's bringing comfort? What do we do when we want the darkness to cover us, when we want to hide? Well, the question of whether God's presence is going to be a comfort or something that scares us hinges on what we believe God's attitude towards us is. If God is graceful and he's forgiving and, and we believe that God is someone who wants us to be fully alive, who seeks our redemption more than our condemnation, then the all-pervasive presence of God is going to be a comfort. But if we're not sure about that, if, if we think that God is uh, someone who's not forgiving, who's not graceful, uh, someone who might will our condemnation more than our redemption, then the all-pervasive presence of God should really be terrifying. Now, we have something that David did not have, which is uh, the revelation that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, we have something to convince us that God is really graceful and loving and that he desires our redemption more than our condemnation, which is the gospel. You know, Jesus Christ, who we are supposed to look to as the supreme revelation of the character of God, demonstrated to us that God loves us enough to become a human being and to suffer and die in order to rescue us. So if we ever find ourselves wanting to escape God's presence rather than to rest in it, the first thing that I think we need to do is to remind ourselves of who God has revealed himself to be through Jesus Christ. The first thing we need to do is to look at Jesus. Now, 
David, though, okay, of course, he didn't have that revelation of Jesus Christ yet. And I think we see David doing something else that is valuable for us. Uh, what he does is, in order to remind himself of God's love and care for him, he turns to God's creation of him. He starts reflecting on God as his creator. Um, and what, what happens here in the psalm is that you can see that David is able to see in his own existence evidence of the power and the love of God. He says in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, what does he mean by that, fearfully and wonderfully made? That's one of those phrases that I heard growing up in church, and I never really asked myself, what does fearfully mean until, until recently? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, what David is saying there is basically, I am a remarkable creation, uh, which is probably clear from the phrase wonderfully made. But what about that word uh, fearfully? What, what is he getting across there? Well, in the Bible, fear is not just used to refer to terror of something bad that's going to happen the way that we typically use it. But fear can also be used to refer to reverent respect, an attitude of reverent respect, or you might even say an attitude of awe. So what David is saying is here, here is that there is something about himself that produces this reverent respect. Okay, or you might even say something about himself that should produce awe. Now I realize that sounds a little arrogant, right, <laughs> that David would say that. But David isn't just talking about himself here. Okay, David is talking about human beings in general. And what he's saying is that every human being is a creation so wondrous that it should fill us with awe, okay, with reverent respect. So the question I have is, do you have a sense when you look at another human being of awe? You know, or when you look at yourself, do you have a sense of awe and reverent respect? I know I don't always, uh, but we should. You know, I think most of us have an easier time of thinking of, say, the universe as fearfully made. Because when we think about the immensity of the universe, it's so mind-boggling that we go, we have that awe, and we go, wow. Um, you know, the solar system alone is big enough that you, if you got in a car and you drove across it at 65 miles per hour, that would take you 164 lifetimes. Not 164 years, but 164 lifetimes. And that's with no food or bathroom breaks. Now, the awe that we feel when we, when, we, when we think of that, that's what it means to recognize something as fearfully made. But that same awe, we should feel that same awe when we think of a human being. Okay? When we think of the human body, the human brain, the human spirit, all of that is a wonder. All of that is amazing. So when we look at ourselves, we should have this sense of wonder, and we should, we should be able to see that we are not an accident. Okay, we are the result of purpose and intention. And, you know, I think that should be apparent to us, whether we think that, to some extent, God used the evolutionary process to create us, or whether we think that God just poofed us into existence, or some combination of the two. You know, whatever you believe about that, we should be able to see God's purpose and intention when we look at ourselves and the fact of our existence and how remarkable we are and in each other. And when we're able to see this, 
it helps us to see God's all-pervasive presence as a comfort rather than a threat because this same God that lovingly crafted us and who intended for us to exist and, and made us, that same loving God is the God who is everywhere all the time and who is with us. Now, I do want to say something that could be considered controversial. No, it's definitely a controversial thing to say, but I do feel like it needs to be said. The reverent awe and respect that should fill us when we look at another human being, that should include when a human being is in the womb, too. Uh, Verse 13 says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. So that's a significant part of the process of being fearfully made, what goes on in those nine months between conception and birth. We should regard that with a sense of reverent awe. And this is one of the reasons why abortion, regardless of our political affiliation, uh, should be something that grieves us. Uh, And it should not be a subject that we take lightly. You know, if we have that reverent awe for human life, if we recognize that in the womb we are fearfully and wonderfully made, then the idea of an abortion should be grievous, right? Uh, If we have reverent awe for human life, then we should and must care for life within the womb. And we should and must care for life outside the womb, especially the the women's lives who carry those children. Um, We, uh, as followers of Christ, we have to have this reverent awe and respect for the lives of the very young and the lives of the very old and everyone in between. Now, Okay, how that reverent awe then goes on to affect our politics, that's a secondary issue. Uh, That's not something I really want to talk about this morning, and I think there's going to be, there will always be disagreement to some extent about that. If you don't think that's a complicated issue, uh, let me tell you something you might not be aware of. If you look at the data since uh, abortion was legalized in America, There is no relationship between which political party is in power and the number of abortions going on in our country. So, you know, stereotypically, people might think, oh, if Republicans who are traditionally pro-life are in power, well, then the number of abortions in our country is going to go way down. Or if Democrats, Democrats are in power, well, then it will go up. But the reality is, if you actually look at the data, there, you, can, you can't find any, um, there's no predictive power to who's, who is federally in power and how many abortions are taking place. So, this is a complicated issue, okay? It's complicated, and uh, when it comes to our politics, we in the church may have disagreements. But, what we in the church should be able to agree on is that abortion is a heartbreaking thing. It's not a good thing, right? It's an inherently violent act, and it should offend our reverent awe for human life. And we should all desire and work towards having a society that cares deeply both for those in the womb and for the women who carry them, because both are fearfully and wonderfully made. All right, so... After God declares, or after David declares that God is everywhere and he knows me, 
the psalm takes this dramatic shift in verse 19. Uh, you might have found, found it kind of startling when I read it, right? Because the psalm, the psalm is so beautiful and nice, and then all of a sudden, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. These bloodthirsty men, get them away from me. And what's remarkable, remarkable to me about this is that it's telling us that this beautiful psalm that David wrote, he wrote it from a place of stress, right? There were people who were after him, people that wanted to kill him, and he was really angry with them. And it was in the midst of that that he wrote these beautiful words about the presence of God. Now, when I first read this psalm earlier this week, uh, after not having looked at it for a while, and I came to this part, I was like, oh man, you know? I kind of wanted to, to just do the psalm up until that point and not read this part, you know? Because it just sounds so pretty before you get to this part, and then this part is so confrontational. But as I reflected on it more, I realized that I actually love that this verse is here. Um, and here's why. Because the highlighted part here, the red part, this shows us that David does not see the presence of evil as evidence that God is not there. I'll say that again. David does not see the presence of evil as evidence that God isn't there. You know, for centuries, philosophers have talked about this thing called the problem of evil. It's a logical problem. And what it says is this. If God is all-powerful and he's all-loving, then why is there evil in the world? And logically, people have a really difficult time reconciling those two things. And what happens is, because people have trouble harmonizing those, those ideas, some people, when they're confronted with evil in the world, they throw out the idea of God. They say, there can't be a God. Or if there is a God, that God certainly isn't everywhere, right? That God doesn't have this all-pervasive presence. But David, we can see here, is being confronted with evil in the world, right? There are bloodthirsty men who are after him, men who hate God. But even in the midst of that situation, David is saying, he's declaring, God is everywhere, and he knows me. Now, David does seem to be wondering out loud, God, why don't you just slay these people? You know, what the heck, why don't you take care of them? But he doesn't see this evil as some, some kind of proof that God isn't there the way a lot of philosophers do. For him, he doesn't have that, that issue. For David, the reality of God's presence is undeniable, even though the evil exists. And the same should be true for us. Okay? Like David, we may struggle to understand why God doesn't just eradicate evil. Why, does, why doesn't he just slay the, the evil ones, right? But also, like David, we shouldn't see evil and sin as some sort of evidence or proof that God isn't there. God is everywhere. And because of that, even when we are surrounded on all sides by evil, okay, God can still minister to us, can still help us in the midst of that, because he's everywhere. He's even there. Now, you may have noticed, David has some really strong words for his enemies in verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, I think it's really important to say something about these verses because they could be used in the wrong way. Uh, somebody could look at these verses and say, see, the Bible tells us that we should hate our enemies. It's good to hate your enemies, right? Somebody could do that. 
But the problem with that is that Jesus specifically told us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus is God in the flesh. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So if we want to know what God is like, our first priority should be to look to Jesus. So if, if we have a choice between following David's example or Jesus' example, we should always follow Jesus' example. So don't let anyone tell you that it's okay to hate your enemies because of this verse. Um, because Jesus calls us to something different. Now, that doesn't mean that we should love what our enemies do, right? Um, but we should desire that they experience redemption rather than condemnation. Now, you might say, okay, well, then the Bible is contradicting itself, right? What do you do with, what do you do with that? Uh, well, I don't think we really have a contradiction here if we understand that a psalm is not the same kind of thing as a command from Jesus. They're both part of Scripture. They're both important. They're both inspired by the Spirit of God. They're both things that we can learn from. Um, but we don't learn from them in exactly the same way. And this is kind of, you know, reading the Bible class number two, I guess you could say, when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Um, you know, when Jesus gives a command, we are to receive that as a command. But what David is saying here, is this a command for us? No, right? Um, it's not even necessarily a positive example for us. What it is, is is an expression of what David is feeling. And <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily mean that's what God wants David to feel. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily what he wants us to feel. I mean, I would say, according to Jesus, it's not what he wants us to feel. Jesus calls us to something more radical uh, than hating our enemies. But this is not a biblical contradiction if we understand that there is a difference between a psalm and a command. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to think that the Bible is just a big instruction manual. Uh, but it's not just a big instruction manual. There's, there's different kinds of writing in it than just instructions. So hopefully that makes sense. We have to use wisdom when we read and interpret the Bible. Now, I find it especially appropriate that right after David says that he has nothing but hatred for his enemies, what does he do? He admits that he might not be fully within the will of God. Right? Because he closes with a request. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See if there is any offensive way in me. See, David knows he's not perfect. And he's inviting God to reveal to him any of the ways that he might be going astray, any of the ways that he might be missing the mark. You know, maybe God said to him after he made that request, hey, David, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like you to have a bit more empathy for the enemies. We don't know for sure, but maybe. Now, I said David is not a perfect example for us. His life is not a perfect example uh, but I think we can learn a lot from the way that he closes this psalm with this request that God search him, correct him, and lead him. So David has spent this psalm declaring, God is everywhere and he knows me. And I think David's conclusion here reveals what the appropriate response is 
to that, that knowledge that God is everywhere and he knows me. The, the appropriate response is to say, God, correct me, lead me, search me. So here is my challenge to us this week. This is my, my concluding exhortation. I think it would be really cool if we were all doing this individually and yet as a community uh, this week. From tomorrow until next Sunday, let's make it a point to pray those verses ourselves every day, verses 23 and 24. And as we do that, let's specifically pray these things. Search me, correct me, lead me. Search me, correct me, lead me. And as we pray those prayers, let's spend some time listening to what the Holy Spirit might be uh, impressing on us about those things. Uh, you know, if you're a journaler, write some stuff down. And as you do this exercise, I want to uh, offer a couple follow-up questions that you can ask for all three of those. So, you know, as you pray, search me. Follow that up with, God, what are the things I'm anxious about? What are the things that I'm afraid of? And why? You know, ask God to search you and reveal to you what's going on in the deepest parts of yourself. What am I anxious about? What, I'm, what, am, I, what am I afraid of? And why? And then as you pray, correct me, you can, you can focus that prayer by asking questions like, what things do I do that hurt others? And what things do I do that hurt myself? And then as you pray, lead me, you can focus that prayer more by asking, what next step can I take to spread your kingdom? Or another way of putting that would be, what next step can I take to help make earth more like heaven? And finally, you can ask, what next step can I take to be more like Jesus? So I really encourage you this week to spend some time alone with God, a couple minutes every day, uh, reflecting on those three things, praying that, those prayers uh, from verses 23 and 24. Search me, correct me, lead me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, I pray that this week as we uh, come before you and we make these requests, search me, correct me, lead me, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. God, we pray that um, we would be trans transformed by your presence in our lives, uh, by your word, by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd help us to step more fully into the life that you're calling us towards into uh, greater wholeness and greater surrender to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.